This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Hulu. Seinfeld. Check out every moment, every episode, now streaming on Hulu.com. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Doing good. Did you have any TV moments that stuck out to you last week? Yeah, I did. I finally started watching this show on Animal Planet called The Last Alaskans, and it's so beautiful. It's really interesting. It's about these four different families who are sort of the last people legally allowed to live in this area of Alaska that's like, it's the size of South Carolina, but, you know, there's four families living there, Mm -hmm. some of them hundreds of miles away from the other ones. It's very hypnotic. The same thing happens a lot, and all of the subjects of the series speak very beautifully about sort of their role in nature and how they think about Alaska as philosophy and moral dilemmas about hunting and being part of the food chain in a certain way. And the show kind of counts down. It's like one day till total darkness. And you're like, oh, my (laughs) God. Right. Yeah, of course. Right. And you sort of don't think about it in that way. It's like, oh, winter, that must be hard. And it's like, oh, total darkness. That's that's probably the really hard part in terms of (laughs) hunting and foraging and that kind of stuff. I find it completely fascinating. I would want to watch an entire series that's like the making of this show. Yeah. I have to think a lot of the camera work is drone stuff, but it's... It's just really, really beautiful. How about you, Matt? My moment is from a show that we're going to discuss at greater length, Catastrophe, which is the whole sequence dealing with the proposal of Rob to Sharon. It really struck a chord with me because a lot of times you you have an ideal version of how things are going to go in in a kind of milestone life event, and they don't go that way, and you have to decide to be all right with it. And this is just a beautiful encapsulation of one of those moments. They go to this club that's recommended by a mutual friend that turns out to be so loud that they can't hear themselves think, and the company is horrible, and just it's just one kind of minor disaster after another, but it leads to a very sweet moment, and I thought it was great. But the whole show is great, as we'll talk about. Gazelle, did you have a TV moment? I was in San Diego with my family last week, so I spent some time watching old television and introducing my sister to Friday Night Lights. And within the first 10 minutes, she said, oh, my God, I love this show, (laughs) which is like, (laughs) that was my favorite TV moment, because that's what you hope will happen when you introduce shows you love to people you love. So, yeah, that was very fulfilling. And also for me, I I had only seen it all the way through once, and rewatching it is a different experience. Like it is. How they edit the show, like like little details that I didn't really notice the first time around. I just, that's all I want to do now. I mean, that pilot is... It's, it's one of a, the best pilots. Yeah, for sure. It's very yeah. good. I had a moment like that when I showed my daughter Twin Peaks, and she's seen... You know, True Detective, Breaking Bad, The X-Files, and a lot of the shows that were, to one degree or another, inspired by Twin Peaks. So, of course, you have that moment of nervousness when you show somebody Mm -hmm. from the younger generation something that was very important to you and that was stylistically very important at the time. Because what if they go like, eh? But she was really into it. And there was a moment where Laura Palmer's father throws himself into the coffin as it's being lowered into the earth. And she said, this is a really weird show. (laughs) And I thought, victory. (laughs) So this episode, we're going to start by talking a little bit about low concept versus high concept TV shows. And then we're going to discuss Amazon's new show, Catastrophe. And at the end, we'll take a question from our listeners. And if you have any questions for us, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. 
So I think a lot of listeners might not know exactly what high concept and low concept shows are. Margaret and Matt, could you explain the difference between these two ideas and what we see on TV? I first heard the phrase high concept applied in the 1980s, and and it was to movies more than TV shows. And a high concept idea, which was uh, described once as Steven Spielberg, as an idea that you can hold in your hand. Like it was something that could be described in a sentence or a phrase. And often it involved oversimplifying the elements of the movie or the show in such a way that it sounded almost like Mad Libs. Like you could say, you know, Die Hard was a a high-concept movie because it could be described as Rambo in a building, which is, in fact, how it was described when people went to 20th Century Fox to pitch it. And you see a million examples of that in movies and in television where it's the concept, you know, it's the hook, as they say, that is the primary appeal for selling the show, getting money to make the show, and, frankly, drawing audiences to the show. And it helps for a high-concept hook. It helps to have a genre. Horror film, science fiction, gangster, crime, thriller, uh, something like that, fantasy, things where there's, you know, dragons and angels, I mean, pulp, anything that you can sort of easily grasp without having to explain it is considered high concept. And it can also be structural, like 24, you can say it's it's a story of a counter-terrorist agent trying to stop an attack on Los Angeles told in real time, and each hour episode equals one hour of real time. And then you've you totally got what the show is, and you can kind mm-hmm. of picture it in your mind. Does it apply more to dramas than to, say, sitcoms? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? I think sort of one of the parallels for high concept, low concept winds up being premise-driven versus character-driven. Not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Certainly there are character-driven high concept shows, and it would be really boring to watch something high concept that didn't have strong characters. But I think sitcoms sort of by nature have to be much, much more character-driven than premise-driven because they tend to be standalone episodes. You know, week to week, you have to stay up to date, right? We need to sort of be able to drop in on a sitcom because they were designed to be eventually syndicated in a lot of ways. So we want primarily character-driven without an idea of a clear end goal, right? And I think for most, for many high-concept stuff, it tends to be premise-driven with we're solving this central mystery. There is this central arc that everything else that happens will still be sort of attached to this trajectory somehow. Mr. Chips becomes Scarface. There you go. A good sure. one. Yeah, exactly. And obviously Breaking Bad is hugely character driven. Right. But the driving through line of that is extremely, mm-hmm. is, it's essential. That's what the show is. Yes. We couldn't have 700 more episodes of Breaking Bad the way that you could sort of have 700 more episodes of, say, Friends. If right. you just, you know, mm-hmm. like it would be work, but... There wouldn't be the like, well, we eventually have to get to the point where this concludes. Like you can imagine sitcoms having a much, comedies having a much longer sort of shelf life. And they do. And they're often much more sort of relaxed and gentle in the way that they get into and out of their story. Like the the classic example being the end of Cheers, which is just sort of like could have been the end of any episode of Cheers, really. Yeah. Is it possible to be both, like a medium concept kind of in the middle of... (laughs) You know, it's funny. I talked about this with one of our mutual friends, Lane Brown, at New York Magazine. And we've talked many times about how Mad Men is sort of a stealth high concept show. Like, it has no generic hook. It's made by one of the people who worked on The Sopranos, but there's no gangsters. There's very little violence. There's not like a... Nobody's building a gangster coalition or trying to build a stretch of transcontinental railroad or anything like that. You're just following a bunch of people over the decades. And yet there is sort of a high concept element, which is the the main character is an imposter. You know, and that sort of serves in its subtle way as like a clothesline that you can string all these character observations on and you can sort of look at the other characters through them. Right. So, so yeah, I think there is a blur. I think there's a way they can be blurred. Do you think we see more of one than the other these days? 
I see a lot of high concept shows that I think should have been movies. Mm. And in fact, that's such a common complaint that I have when I review pilots that I, I feel slightly guilty typing the same sentence again, which is this should have been a movie. The most recent example for me was Last Man on Earth. The more I think about Last Man on Earth, the more I think, well, that that might have been a wonderful limited run series or a movie. Right. And maybe maybe not so much a series. Maybe with stronger characters, yes. But But I run into that a lot. But of course, your mileage may vary. There are some people who thought that 24 really only had enough gas for one season and that every other season after that was superfluous, and I can see their point of view. Mm-hmm. There's sort of trends. And after a very high concept show does very well, we wind up with a long sort of echo of that. Lost. Uh, yeah, that's certainly the clearest example. It multiplies. Yeah, and so we had this very high concept show and then a bunch of other high concept shows. We're still having some echo effects, I think, of the lost sort of style and phenomenon of how to approach a kind of like that frame of a drama and then you know probably in the mid 90s we had a lot of much more low concept stuff in the sort of like NYPD blue family where it's like it's a cop show it's like then what happens like "Mm, like a bunch of stuff right like (laughs) ER is a low concept sort of following this definition right it's a hospital show right but everything else is the story yes right so it's just like that's the setting that's not the premise right Right. and I think we had a lot of shows in that vein in the mid 90s where we had a lot of third watch was another one yeah West Wing really too it's like it's it's set at the White House but that's really all you can say for it in terms of concept yeah everything else is tone and characterization exactly The show we are discussing next, Catastrophe, does feel kind of like in this middle ground where you have, you do have kind of a gimmick, a pregnancy, but other than that, it's just these two characters living their lives. I'll tell you what feels structurally new or fresh about it is the speed with which the story is told. People are familiar with how television narratives are constructed and they're impatient and they want to get on to the next thing. And so we see things happening much faster and the things that happen tend to be much bigger. In the past, you know, 20 or even 10 years ago, an episode might have been built around one particular big event, but now we'll see three or four or five in an episode. And not just in a mid-season finale or a season finale, but in a regular episode. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Empire is probably the best example of that. But um, catastrophe, it's it's a speed thing. And that, that was what struck me about it was, you know, we say it's about a guy who gets a woman pregnant and they decide to have the baby together even though they don't know each other. Well, that's something that happens in literally five minutes, the first five minutes right. of the show. I was stunned by how quickly they got that out of the way. <laughs> and that's another source of the show's humor is how quickly things happen and, and how enormous the events are and how seemingly easygoing the characters are about accepting the fact that this is a reality. Just a tiny bit of backstory. This show was created by Sharon Horgan and Rob Delaney. Rob Delaney is a comedian and Sharon Horgan is a a master of Twitter, we should say. A a Twitter comedian (laughs) is how he got his start, I believe. And Sharon Horgan is, you know, a longtime writer for comedies as well. And they play versions of themselves. And as Matt said, they have a lot of sex in, I think it's six days, and then end up getting pregnant. She lives in the UK, he lives in the US, but he ends up moving to the UK to raise the He comes the back when she calls, yeah, she calls him back there when she finds mm-hmm. out that she's pregnant. And that happens at the nine minute mark. I keep bringing time into it because I'm still amazed by how, how compressed this time frame is. I mean, things that, that really almost any other show would have saved at least till the end of the pilot. Right. Or maybe till the end of episode three or four, they're throwing it at you 10 minutes in, which is pretty audacious. Margaret, you wrote about how this is the TV rom-com you've been waiting for. (laughs) Have we not seen many TV rom-coms and have we seen attempts that have failed or haven't quite lived up to? So we saw a couple in the last year or so. The best one 
before Catastrophe was definitely You're the Worst. And I think those shows have a lot in common. Although I wouldn't want to choose between them, but I would probably choose Catastrophe. Just because I think You're the Worst has maybe a little bit more, uh, it's a little less aerodynamic. I think Catastrophe has a very, very clear idea of what it wants to do. And I think You're the Worst had maybe a little bit more sort of drag with extraneous characters. But then this season, you know, we had A to Z and Manhattan Love Story. I feel like there's a couple of other ones that are sort of in the mm-hmm. mix. I guess was there Selfie. Oh, Selfie. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, none of them were very successful. None of them mm-hmm. were successful, frankly, at all. Um, Although I liked A to Z a lot, actually. I yeah, mean, I it wasn't was a, a great show, but the chemistry between those leads was good. There was a fun thing there, but I think its desire to stall out was just, like so frustrating. And then in terms of success and stain on television, uh, not a right. success. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought there were good parts of, well, not Manhattan Love Story, but selfie. certainly Selfie mm-hmm. and A to Z had parts I liked. I think... In some ways, Jane the Virgin can be sort of a rom-com. Mm-hmm. It's obviously structurally a telenovela, but I think there are certainly strong romantic elements in it. Lots of shows have strong romance angles, but I think Catastrophe is this very pure, obvious rom-com. Like, it, that's it. That It definitely is that. You know, and, mm-hmm. and unabashedly so. I don't yeah. think it's corny. I don't think it's trite, but I think it hits a lot of marks that we expect from the genre. What do you think makes it more effective than the other shows we were talking about? I don't think this is how you have to do things to be a successful comedy, but I think one way to do it is to have extremely natural style. Like They're funnier than regular people, and they're better looking than regular people, but they're not special. They're not extraordinary. There's nothing about them that's like, you'll never believe this guy, right? Like No, no, and, and that doesn't sound like they're trying out material on each other, which is often the case when, when sitcoms try to write witty dialogue for their sure. leads. Mm-hmm. They talk to each other the way people who are in a relationship and are funny would talk to each other, and you feel like you're eavesdropping on their conversation. It's not a conversation for you. It's a conversation between them, and you are allowed to listen to it, and that's a very simple but very different way to approach it, and I wish more TV shows would do that. I think it's lack of artifice just makes it so accessible, right? You've, and the style and the sort of cinematography and the whole way that the pacing works, you very much feel like you're right along there with them. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, it's easy to love stuff that's, you know, right there with you. Of course, it's easy to laugh along with things the way you would if it was happening at the dinner table, you know? Oh, also another thing, there isn't a funny person and a straight man in this pairing. I don't go with that paradigm. And usually that paradigm breaks along gendered lines, which is the guy is the funny man, boy, life force, chaos person, and the woman is a drip. Yeah, You know, she, she's like the drag who always wants him to grow up. And that's not the case with these characters. They're just people. I find her much more funny and interesting as a character. He's kind of the... I, I like him, but I don't find him to be the reason I watch the show. Right. She is the reason I watch, and... He's kind of just as amazed by her as we are. He is, and although I will say his reactions to other characters are funny to me. He's sort of sarcastically cutting towards them without actually saying anything to them. Right. Just by the way he looks at them and the way he (laughs) he goes, hmm. You know, it's very very subtle. It's very funny. There's also a moment where, like, the sort of douchebag friend comes up and he's like, hey, guys, like, what are we doing tonight? And Rob's like, good, how are you? There's some, some, like, weird, like, miscalculation on the, and I mean, I think it's purposeful miscalculation, but whatever the big offer was, he came back with just, like, it sounds like a correct social response, but it's 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 not not the one that matches up. 
You yes. know, it's like accidentally saying I love you when you're talking to your coworker on the phone. <laughs> right, right. It's like, oh, this just has some phone conversation then, but not this one. So well, I think like just that sort or of. Or you little... say like, hey, Margaret, nice to see you again, and you and you say good. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> just that weird like. Or at the airport, off. we're like, have yeah. a good trip. And like, you too. It's like, yeah. oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just me. Bye. Yes, yes the luck. buttons, the buttons yeah. of the brain being pushed. What do you think about the cast of kind of annoying peripheral friends they have? I feel like that's one of the only areas in which the show is bowing to romantic comedy cliche. Like, there's always eccentric and or irritating best friends and family members. And you... You almost have to have that. I mean, it's just like there are certain elements in a Western or an action film that you pretty much have to have, so that doesn't bother me. But I think the characters are very are vivid. They're vivid, and I like the actors who play them, and I like the fact that you, you know, time and time again, you think you know exactly what they're about. You think you've got them fitted into a nice little box. And then a few scenes later, you realize you just don't know them at all. And that's a recurring pattern with all of the characters on this show. Like, the more time you spend with them, the more unique they seem. Which is, again, the opposite of what you usually get from not just most romantic comedies, but from most entertainment. I wanted to play a clip. It comes at the end of the fifth episode, and this made me laugh harder than I think any part of the show. And it's after Rob convinces Sharon that he's more into her than he is his ex-girlfriend. And then this is what she says. I have to tell you something. One of the first nights we were together, you made this weird sound when you came. Like, normally you're all grunty and... But this one time you made this weird, high-pitched, kind of feminine, kind of... And I don't know if you remember, but one of the days I didn't call you until, like, 9pm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it was because of that. (laughs) I just loved that scene. Well, A, because I just thought it was hilarious, but B, because it felt like he... He had become like a little bit vulnerable and she was like, I'm taking the power back. And like, she seems to have all the power in this relationship. I yeah, 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 yeah. It was funny. Yeah, that, <laughs> that moment I think I quoted in my review where he says like, you, you let me put my penis in your mouth, but you won't let me put my shirts in your drawer. <laughs> right. And she says, let's not rush things, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> I like how frank the show is about sex. I think yeah. that part mm-hmm. is very funny and refreshing and makes you feel very much along for the ride. It doesn't feel phony. I also, when she was like, can you take a walk? And he's like, oh, for like coffee? She's like, no, go to a movie. Like, get out of here. She just like wants like some alone time. Uh, I thought that was really funny. And the way they handled it, right? Like it didn't become a fight. I really like the way the show approaches conflict, which is, you know, these are grown up people. These are people who have done this sort of screaming, plate breaking fights or whatever. Like that part is over. But speaking of which, what did you make of the fight in the... That's the part I liked the least. I liked that the least as well. It felt like it didn't earn it. I just didn't buy it completely. Especially because we had established so much about these characters. So in particular, the way Rob talks about uh, his sobriety, which is just a statement of fact. It's established very early on in the first few lines Mm -hmm. of the pilot. So for somebody to have like a history of addiction abuse and and to say that like, oh, I shit my pants at my sister's wedding. Right. Like this is somebody who has like eight years of sobriety. Like he's done work. Like, those little bitchy fights, like, don't happen. And she's, you know, she says she's, what, like, 39 or something? Like, mm-hmm. and she when she talks about her crappy former relationships and, like, the French guy and whatever, you learn things from those relationships and from those experiences. And well, you, hopefully you do. I think the way that these characters operate, it makes it seem like they did. Yeah. Where... I think in other sitcoms, we have every little misunderstanding becomes crazy, blown out of proportion. And then there's the sort of like hang dog, like, I didn't realize how much I loved you. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Right. Like all of those sort of phony baloney things. And this time it's like, 
hey, okay, like people need space. I'm going to take a walk. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, yeah. I okay. Didn't, I didn't mind that scene as much as I guess you two did. But um, to the me, fight? it was, yeah, to me, it was, you know, I felt like it wasn't as strong as anything else in the show, but it was, it was still better than a, that type of scene would be on almost any other show I can think of. You know, because of the, who the actors were and who the characters were. I think it was a case where they knew where they needed to get and they didn't get there in as convincing a, a way as I would have liked. Yeah, right. Um, but I, mean, I do also... believe, I did believe that they would, at the moment of, of theoretical greatest closeness between them, they would suddenly push apart from each other. Yeah. I believe that. That seems very true yes. to life. It's just a question of the execution. And a lot of time has passed and we don't really get that. We see her belly grow much faster than we've seen them interact based on how much time we spend with them. So. Well, and also if she's that pregnant, the tension level is going to be escalated. Yeah. <laughs> like even if they love each other, the tension level is going to be escalated. And I'm telling you, you know, from experience, there's going to be moments where even if you love each other to death, you can say something that sets the other person off and you don't even know why it did. You know, and it's right. just that's just the reality of it. It's not that conceptually they're completely wrongheaded. I just think they weren't up to snuff compared to almost every other scene in the in the six episodes. Matt, you had compared the show to Mad Men and Sopranos in an interesting way. Yeah, what I meant by that was, and I've written about this a lot in relation to The Americans. The Americans is a show where the primary draw for me is the exploration of this marriage and the relationship between the parents and their children. And secondarily, the romantic relationships and sort of work marriages elsewhere on the show and their relationship to their children, sometimes blood children, sometimes figurative children in the form of people who work beneath them in a workspace. Like It's very elaborate the way it's all laid out. But at the center of this is what you might call a kind of a high concept idea, which is the main couple are, there are Russian spies. They're pretending to be something that they are not. Just it's as, definitely a high concept you know, idea. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> is. And yet the, that's that's our way into it. And, and that's why it, it sort of reminds me of the Mad Men approach, which is if you just look at Mad Men on paper, it's not a high concept show. It's not a genre show. But the presence of Don Draper in the narrative gives it a touch of that. And that's really all you need to sort of elevate it beyond being able to, to sort of write it off as a bunch of people at an ad agency and their problems. You know, it gives them a sort of an entry point to weave all of these metaphorical examinations of different issues into the script. And I feel like Mad Men, The Sopranos, The Americans, Breaking Bad, all of these shows were much more high concept than Catastrophe. But the one thing they all have in common is that there's something about the concept that makes the familiar unfamiliar. And in Catastrophe, it's the speed with which this happens to this couple, the fact that they're experiencing things. You know, they've jumped ahead. They basically fast-forwarded in the relationship to where people would be like three or five or however many years down the road, mm -hmm. for most people. And they're there instantaneously, practically. And that automatically lifts it out of its usual romantic comedy context and makes you look at everything in a fresh way. Yeah. You're looking at them in a way that you wouldn't look at, at characters in, in a, a regular romantic comedy who are going through this. Like three seasons, five seasons, seven seasons in, they get pregnant because they need to liven up the show and then it ends up killing the show because babies always kill a show. And that doesn't happen here. That idea makes me think a little bit about the film Certified Copy. Yeah. The, the Abbas Kiarostami yes. film where two people meet and immediately start acting like they're an old married couple. And there's something very jarring about it and makes you look at the nature of relationships differently than you would. It is. And, and the show is very, very conscious about this. It's not self-conscious, but it's very conscious of it. And they even have a bit where... I think he's talking about um, the relative divorce rates of westernized society, you know, mm -hmm. supposedly liberal societies and societies in which arranged marriage is common and how it's actually, you know, why is it that the divorce rates are lower 
And, you know, obviously there are cultural factors, but, you know, it does sort of beg the question of how much of this idea of waiting to get to know each other and taking it slow is rooted in psychological reality and how much of it is just a different kind of propaganda that we bought into that's different from the propaganda that we might have bought into in the 50s if we were in a relationship, you know? I don't know. One of the ways the show also subverts the things we might expect from rom-coms is it's not a will they, won't they. There's no moment where it's mm-hmm. won't they, right? They will. No, they, they do immediately. That immediately. They do. And yeah. they will, and then what happens? And I think when we talk about, you know, babies being like... Uh, show killers. Yeah, I don't think it's that they have a baby that's the show killer. I think it's by the time a show is willing to sort of pull that emergency cord, we're already so far past the good stories. I don't think will they want the couples getting together is bad for a show. I think it happens when everything already bad is happening for a show. For example, like Bones, which whatever. I've seen a lot of Bones. I like Bones. (laughs) Or I did for a very long time. And it was Will They, Won't They? And they had like this whole fun thing. But then it took so long and they went so far past when it was time to figure that shit out that by the time they're like, okay, now we're getting together. It's like, okay, but we've exhausted everything and then some. The problem was not the getting together. It was waiting this long. Then the flip of that being like Mindy Project where they had Mindy and Danny. Maybe, maybe, maybe. You know what? Yes. Fine. Yeah. And that certainly didn't ruin the show for me. I didn't think, no. you know, I didn't want no. to see Mindy date more people. It was like, we have this fun thing going. Like, let's they did take it, it well, up for a spin. As opposed to New Girl, yes. which they had to backtrack on that. I think New Girl, I don't think the problem was Nick and Jess getting together. I think New Girl doesn't always know what it wants to be about. Yeah. Um, and that became a magnification of that. But I think fundamentally the show lost track of what its little, like, comedy questions are and just didn't know how to find that center again. And it gets blamed on the Nick and Jess relationship, but I don't actually think that's I do. I, I, I agree with that, disease. but I think the Nick and Jess relationship they were fumbling a lot with that. And as you said, it magnified the problems. I also think something that happens, and I think it, for me it happened on New Girl for sure, was that when a couple got together, they stopped seeming like who they were beforehand. So I think like Nick's decrepitude became yeah. so much more extreme. And like they weren't always like opposites attract, right? It was just like, oh, like, yeah, you're two kind of weirdos. And then it became much more like, I'm this way and you're the opposite right. way, which was like not at all how we had seen them before. Versus like for me, say, like Luke and Lorelai finally getting together on Gilmore right. Girls, where they continue to be very much how we'd known them to be for the previous four seasons. He's gruff. She's quirky. Like, she's very demanding. He's very confused by, like, social norms. And it leads like, to problems sometimes. Oh, absolutely. But all those realistic. problems were problems that the show, I think, like, that the characters discovered, not invented. Right. When there's a couple on TV that you want to see get together, you want to see them still be them. It's fascinating how risky it is to go there. Like, it's one of the simplest things to do, and it's one of the one of the few areas of narrative on television that everyone has a comparison point with. Like, thankfully, few people know what it is to, like, spy for Russia or kill a mobster or something like that. But everybody knows what it's like to fall in love and break up with somebody. So when we watch these things, we're judging them very harshly. And in a way, I almost feel like the level of imagination required to tell these stories is much, much higher than it would be for a genre piece, because you can't sort of just tell the audience, take my word for it. Mm-hmm. This is good. This is believable because we know. That's a great point. It's like how doctors you know, can't watch House or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Humans can't watch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you said the level of imagination has to be higher. And I wonder if it's almost like all the way around to the other side where it's like, don't imagine something. Tell me a true story. Yeah. The, right. Um, like there's yeah, that's a the, better so, way the more it, imaginative it is, the more it reeks of bullshit. Right. Right. Like if you met a couple and they're like, 
oh my god and they had this like crazy love story you'd be like suck it like yeah. it's just like it's, you would hate them right it's just like obnoxious or stupid you're like they're hiding something Margaret Lyons greeting cards <laughs> no but you would you'd like there's party that's like this is bullshit or like yeah. you just like wouldn't buy it somehow right but yeah. if it was like how'd you guys meet and I was like oh mutual friend you're like okay like yeah. right, like yeah. you're not like, how dare you? <laughs> right? like, like the way that sometimes people have this like crazy, yeah, yeah. like I don't know, like circuitous route, and it's like, and then we're running in the airport or whatever. It would just be like yeah. so unbearable. Versus when we see Rob and Sharon in the airport, and she was like, I thought maybe you weren't coming back. And he's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> why? Why? And she's like, I don't know. And just like I loved that sort of candor. And I think that like, even in a relationship that works, we all sometimes wind up having these little like panic moments of like, am I being defrauded? <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. And you just yes, sort of like yes. you have them, and to sort of you're like, who give, is this person? <laughs> to give name to that and like acknowledge it as sort yeah. of part of the like healthy emotional cycle that we all have on an ongoing basis of like, well, what am I up to? And like, uh, is this just a habit or is this like a decision? Well, that's sort of the reason why I love this show ultimately, because it's just a great example of a show that it is about what it appears to be about. It's about what it's about on a really basic level, which is the love story between these two people and the obstacles that they encounter having decided to stick together, even though, you know, she's pregnant. But it's also about something else to me, which is the mystery of the human personality and how you never really can know somebody. You know, you keep even if you're together with them for years and years, you keep making new discoveries about them. And these this couple keeps making discoveries about each other. And again, this is where the acceleration makes it so funny and fresh. Here's what I'm sort of concerned about is I think catastrophe. It's a critical success. It's an object of conversation. People seem really delighted when critics write about it because I think streaming shows are still in some way not considered to be real shows, although I think that's changing. But I wonder what will other showrunners take from this show in terms of lessons? Like, what are they going to do? Is it going to be a Lost sort of situation where all the shows that tried to be like Lost were imitating the wrong aspects of Lost? You know, right. I mean, that, and I we see like that happen time and time again. There was like a friends ripple effect too. There sure. was, yeah. and it's like it's it's incredible to me how often when a show is interesting, whether or not it's hugely popular, if it's critically acclaimed, if it gets attention, suddenly you see a bunch of shows that are trying to be that thing, and they're all not quite getting they it. They don't get it. They're not getting it in some fundamental way, and I don't exactly know. But I just feel like I'm afraid that's going to happen with this, and and. Uh, I'm my, dreading it. My I'm dreading fear it. is the rise of the six-episode season. Oh god! I get it. I get it from like a creative standpoint of like it's a lot of work to make a TV show. I totally get it. But like I grew oh. up worshiping Melrose Place that used to have like thirty-three episode seasons. Like I want, want more. more show, <laughs> and like, six half-hour episodes is not enough for me. And I think what is the ideal season length? I don't know what the answer is, but it's definitely not six. <laughs> I don't mind it. I mean, that's the, Brit- it's the, just Br- the, the British Br- model. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, it's like, I think they should make however many episodes they think they have in them. I know. Yeah. Like, I agree <laughs> from like my brain, but my heart is like crying out for so many more episodes. <laughs> like I got, like I watched the screeners. And I was like emailing the post. I was like, can you send me the rest of the season, please? And he's like, that's it. I was like, how dare you? (laughs) I have been defrauded. I was promised a lifetime of happiness from a TV show, and I need more than, like, two and a half hours of it. Hello, I'm Lionel Hutz. (laughs) You need need representation I just, I wanted more, you know, and I think, like, HBO's model of, like, fewer and fewer episodes per season, we have a lot of 10-episode seasons Mm -hmm. on HBO right now. I don't know. It's not enough show for me. 10 or 13 can feel really good. Depends on the show. I don't mind if it so it's much. Game of Thrones. I think it's enough. Ten, 
10 feels like a lot. Ten's a lot. Action. I, I think it was more than that. You might start <laughs> yeah. to feel like you were slogging through the mud with those characters. Exactly. That's one of the things I like about the way TV has evolved is that they don't feel pressure to, to give us more story than they necessarily feel that they have in them. I think that's good. So for this show, I think we all felt like the sixth episode where they get married and then they have this big fight. Like, I think if there had been two episodes in there and had the fight yeah. given like a little bit longer to like really let those like panic feelings sink in, because I don't think we had that real like, holy shit, what did I just do? Yeah. Right? right. And that's right. really what the right. fight is Skip about. that part. Right? And I yeah. think we really like raced by that to get to the conclusion we needed or they needed. But even like a 45 minute episode for that one. Like I, I don't think this was just like tell as much story as he got in you. They had a lot more story in them and it's six episodes and I get it like business, blah, 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 like British system. But the truth is that it did need more episodes. Well, this is the case also where the elasticity of the TV format could have been their friend. So much of the show is very, very speedy, you know, very brisk and economical in the way it tells its story. But by making the majority of the episodes in that way, they can afford to indulge themselves and have a whole episode that's just a fight. Yeah. You know, like like something like The Sopranos did that actually in an episode where they it was like something like 45 minutes of a one hour episode at the end of I think season four or five was just a fight between I mean, Tony not, and Carmella. Like a bottle episode is a normal thing to have yeah. over the course of a season. It is. Yeah. But the fact that we're asking them for more episodes is a compliment to the show. At least we're not like, saying, you know, like, oh, God, that you didn't need as many episodes as you gave us. You <laughs> Please know? stop making me watch this. <laughs> House of Cards. House of Cards. <laughs> True Detective. Oh. The, the TV show we're discussing is Catastrophe, and you can watch the first season on Amazon Prime. Up next, we'll take a question from one of our listeners. But first, a word from our sponsor. What's your favorite Seinfeld moment or episode? What are the essentials you can't wait to rewatch? Is it the puffy shirt or sparing a square? Are you double dipping or are these pretzels making you thirsty? Do you dance like Elaine and do you need junior mints? And is there a jujube destined for disaster? For the first time ever, you can stream all episodes of Seinfeld exclusively on Hulu. For $7.99 a month, watch all nine seasons of Seinfeld and so many other shows on all of your supported devices with your Hulu subscription on Hulu.com. This is a question from Mike. Does the hyper-stylization on the latest season of Hannibal detract from the narrative substance of the show? Nope. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, that is that it? Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, this, this season has been a lot more avant-garde in that way. So do you, think, do you think viewers have been a little turned off by it? I don't know. I have a kind of a skewed sample. Like most of the people who follow me love the show as much as I do, and they have no objection to the show being even more uh, sort of arty and pretentious than mm-hmm. it already is. It's fine. <laughs> and, you know, and as I've joked on here before, this is the kind of show where, like, somebody can't get up from a chair and cross the room to get more coffee without there being a montage. Like that's <laughs> just the kind of show it is. And, and Brian Fuller, the showrunner, has actually told – the directors of the series, you know, we're making a pretentious 1980s art house film here. And I like what they've done with the structure of it this year and with the style. And uh, I don't think there's such a thing as uh, going too far for a show like this because going too far is built into it. But your mileage may vary. I have this running argument with a friend on Twitter about um, whether or not all of the blood splats are necessary <laughs> on Hannibal. Do you think that the new direction may have had anything to do with NBC's decision? or that's, I don't think so. I yeah. feel like it's, it's it dollars was and a, It cents. was more of a procedural before. They never make decisions based on art, as mm-hmm. far as I can tell. It's always about, you know, are we getting our money's worth? Right. And I think here the audience was so minuscule, even considering the low license fee they were paying, that they just decided, you know what, we could... I think we could make more money with something else in this slot. Mm-hmm. And that's why they didn't, you know, renew their license to run Hannibal. 
I mean, I think if you're on a cable channel, you're able to make decisions that are maybe a little bit more about the art, which is why I think the Americans got another season, despite not having great ratings. Mm-hmm. Or certainly how Mad Men hung on for as long as it did, given that the show was never a huge, huge hit for AMC. And AMC's had other much more popular shows than Mad Men. No, but I would say the saving grace for Mad Men, even though in terms of numbers, the audience was small compared to something you'd see on a broadcast network. The demographic was extraordinary. Oh, and, th- sure. and that's why you saw those ads. Like the ads were for extremely high end products a mm. lot of the time. And also in terms of like defining the brand of AMC or whatever. But, right, you know, right. Breaking Bad had much higher ratings than Mad Men. Yes. Um, and even like Hell on Wheels often did better than Mad Men. <laughs> like, right. That said, it, I mean, it, you know, it's a business. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think for Hannibal, too, this season, like, Oh, Margaret Tom like draws a connection to improv. Everybody drink, but you have to uh, you have to rest the game sometimes, right? I think Hannibal season one was much more procedural, and season two they really like this sort of push and pull between Hannibal and and uh, Will. Will Graham that became much more clearly the game. And then so we want to be able to have a lot of that, and then also rest that. So when we come back to it, it means something, and we're not just like driving this into the ground. Mm-hmm. So I think this season when people feel like we're getting away from the game. That's true, but I think like that's part of the structure of of how we build like a sense of inevitability is that we know that this game has to recommence. Yes. And so we're going to have parts that that don't seem like they fit into that, and I don't think that it's necessarily the super slow-mo and the macro whatever. I think it's it's the other parts of the story that make it feel like we're away. Having talked to Brian Fuller for this vulture piece, mm-hmm. I think I can confidently say that we what we are looking at here is a five. If if there is a fourth season of Hannibal, it will end up being a five season show, and the extra season is hidden in season three. The first half of season three is mainly about what happens to Hannibal and Florence, and that arc is going to conclude very soon. And then we're going to be on to basically a self contained miniseries based on Red Dragon, which was you mm-hmm. know made twice first as Manhunter and then as Red Dragon. So essentially, we're getting like two miniature seasons packed into right. one. Right. So what you mean here. is that this this season three will spiritually basically be a third and fourth season. That's how I feel. uh, That if it got renewed for another season, that That would would be be five. Yeah, Not that if it got renewed for another season, it might as well get renewed for two. In in the same way that I think Mad Men fans can reasonably argue whether that was a seven or an eight season show. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. because season seven was broken into halves that were separated by one year. And again, this is, you know, it sounds like splitting hairs, but I like that. And I also like that each of these individual seasons, however you choose to define them, has a different feel, has a different structure, has a different mood, a different rhythm. It's not always the same show. Like that, I went back and watched some episodes in the first season, and it was much more of a one off type of show. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Serial Killer of the Week. A yeah. And the second season departed from that more in almost a kind of organic, evolutionary way as it went along until it becomes more and more and more operatic and more tragic as it goes along. And this season, they're going for something different, and they're going to switch it up yet again at the midpoint. And then if there is a season four, and oh boy, I hope there is, it's going to be nuts. It's going to be nuts. Like, even Brian Fuller was sort of preemptively apologizing for how completely insane he hoped it would be. It would also be the only time ever for Brian Fuller to get a fourth season. I know. I mean, this is the only time he's had a third season. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, wow. that we wandered pretty far afield. But no, I don't think it's too excessive. <laughs> but, you know, everybody feels differently about that stuff. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. We've been doing this show for a few months now, and we love the feedback we've been getting from you so far. If there are any shows or topics you'd like to hear us discuss more, please let us know. You can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abduraman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. 
check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Matt Soller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Soller Sites. And you can catch us all here again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.